Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. tuned in to Bite Into It. On Triple R, we've got Dan Salmon. Good evening. Paul Callahan. Hello. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. And I'm sending out a big happy 75th birthday to my dad this evening. Oh. Love you, Dad. Um, so, guys, how was your week in tech? I didn't turn 75, that's for sure. <laughs> um, that was less about the tech than you'd think. I think my, my week in tech has been good in that it has been uneventful. Everything worked. Beautiful. Nothing froze. We love um, to hear that. Yeah, that I, I think I can't, I can't say anything more pleasant than that, really. The system does work sometimes. sometimes. And you, Paul? I could be, I could be slightly nerdier, nerdier than that. <laughs> oh, come on, here we go. Upgraded, I upgraded one of my little Raspberry Pis to Raspberry Pi 5 this week, which I'm oh, using as a little server. Um, and I'm trying out uh, one, the older, so the Raspberry Pi 4, um, running OpenWRT, which is a little open source router, so replacing... Replacing some in-house hardware. Beautiful. Uh, I was. I went in the nerd wars. Yeah, I was going to say it's much nerdier than what I nerd. Sorry, everyone. That's all right. uh, I never professed to be a nerd, but I suppose I am on this show. Well, you got into the software. I got into the hardware. Um, I had the pleasure of being uh, handed down a beautiful Rancilio coffee grinder, and um, even though you know they'd done their work on it and made it beautiful. I couldn't help but just investigating because it's fun looking at a machine and going, mm, I wonder how much life these burrs have in them and is everything looking good and it's looking fantastic. But, you know, I just cleaned it up and then I Windexed it and, and I gave a little hat tip to my dad who used to get little appliances in the house that needed fixing out on the dining table on a weekend and really built up my confidence and skills with being able to navigate basic mechanics and basic electronics. And I'm so grateful for that. And uh, isn't that such a Melbourne thing? It is. Like getting into a coffee grinder. <laughs> Making a coffee grinder from scratch. I, I, I do want to just, uh, one, for one moment, take you back to Windex. Windex. Oh, just on the outside, <laughs> the stainless steel parts. You want them to look beautiful. Oh, right. You know, okay. Give I'm it like, a bit of love. I was trying to work out what, like, do you do on the plastic, on the no, hopper? or no? Okay. No. Oh, look at you, the hopper. There's a bit of coffee knowledge there. Oh, uh, yeah. When I have a coffee show, not everyone. Just one <laughs> trick, not one trick pony. You just reminded me I need to get my um, espresso machine service. So that's on the list. <laughs> my technology isn't working because the espresso machine has well, stopped. Well, look, we do care about optimal caffeination. And uh, tonight, you might want to be optimally caffeinated while we settle in for a scene-setting conversation about the year ahead in digital rights with the chair of Electronic Frontiers Australia, John Payne, who we're happy to welcome back to the show. Later in the program, we're going to hear from one of the dynamic and digitally enabled artists exhibiting in Science Gallery Melbourne's latest show. It's called Not Natural, and we can't wait to dive into that a bit more. First up, news. What have we got happening out there at the moment? Um, I saw a little thing come through on the Sizzle newsletter that uh, there is a new Australian Computer Society Migration Skills Assessment going online in March. Now, in the past, this has been done through paper and pen, I believe. It hasn't been digital, which is a shame. And now it's going to be an online form. And this is the sort of form that people fill out if they're migrating to Australia and they need to get their IT qualifications, you know, um, assessed by a third-party body. In this case, the ACS does that. Um, 
the process, the certification process cost increased from $550 to $1,100. That's rough. It doubled. <sighs> cost of living crisis. Yeah, for, for migration services, I suppose yeah. they can make their gouge where These they services can, are in demand. Mm. Anyway. And, and is that expected to be paid by the employers who are hoping to migrate people in or is that no, by the, this by is, the applicants this is an themselves? individual hoping to get accredited so that they have prospective employees to talk to. I see. Because before then, you know, this is a, this is a cost of doing business. Mm. So that's pretty rough. Um, you can't imagine that's a time when you've got a lot of money to spare when you're trying to credential yourself in a new country. True. Anyhow, you can read more about that at the register. And speaking of things that are adjacent to the Commonwealth Government, um, the Commonwealth Government is uh, setting up a new sender ID registry to uh, take the fight to SMS scams. So uh, the message headers or the sender ID that you you sometimes might receive, you know, a, a unsolicited text message from lots of them, lots way of them. more than oh. my friends. Just saying, friends, I'm getting way more of these unsolicited messages. <laughs> we, we, we love you, Vanessa. We'll text Thank you more. We promise. It's um, amazing. But so, so essentially, um, the registry is going to work by creating a controlled list of numbers of registered brand names, and then prevent text messages from being sent using registered brand names unless the number matches the approved number on the registry. So essentially, that means that you will need to uh, verify your organisation with the federal government before you are able to send Look, fingers mass crossed that this works. People. Yeah. I mean, look, it's an attempt. They need to do better. Yeah. So, um, yeah, good on them for trying. It is quite a complex problem to solve. If they can stop Clive Palmer, then I, I think that, that would be... Um, <laughs> oh, please, politicians are always exempt from these rules. Dad, this come is on. Tr- I know, I know. <laughs> is, Clive, is Clive texting you a lot? Like... Yeah, like, I, I miss you. Where, you, where were you? I saw, I, I saw you last night, but you, you didn't up? come over. Yeah. <laughs> oh, go, sorry, go, sorry, go, sorry. Go. I went there. I'm Take afraid. it somewhere else, please. Okay, we'll move it on. While I shiver in the corner. Uh, anyone who cares about mobile coverage and um, potentially, you know, living in places with poor mobile coverage might be interested to know that property developers could be required to consider this aspect during planning of housing developments larger than 50 dwellings Mm. through the federal government's telecommunications in new developments policy, which would still have to be adopted and implemented by all various states and territories (laughs) to come into force. Um, However, you know, they they have a hope and a dream. Mm. So they're they're putting it out there and saying that, look, developers need to start taking this into account um, because... uh, you know, human rights requires people to have access to telephones mm. so that they can access essential government services and what have you, and it's not okay for them not to have access in their own homes where they are so much of the time. That's it. Thick concrete walls are not great for mobile service, so it would be nice to see these uh, principles adopted They are great, though, for friendly neighbours. So, are, you yes, know, so it's true. good to have little techniques to work around those. Absolutely. One loophole that, I, that occurred to me on this one, and I know it's very, very, very niche. However... Lifts in buildings are generally made of metal. They generally act as a Faraday cage. How are they going to get around that little chestnut? Is it just going to be in your home or does it need to be entirely within the building? <laughs> just drill that's a little my question. hole in the top of the lift. Oh, and let, that's a, it's a signal. The, 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 is, is that how it works? So, yeah, science. That's, that's how science works. All right, good to know. So, so why haven't they done that in my office? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we might have to like scale this this discussion up a bit to to include our listeners. Um, <laughs> so we, we've drifted from science almost into art. You know, the little the hole that lets light in. Mm. Um, what's 
What's happening in uh, Reddit at the moment? The latest Reddit news, Paul. Reddit news. Um, I don't know if many of our listeners are aware that uh, the social network Reddit is um, looking at uh, an initial public offering. There's been a, a number of changes to the site uh, over the past year, 18 months or so, um, including, again, no doubt people remember the, the, the shutting down of the external API, which led to quite a lot of um, protesting online. Um, but uh, just in the past couple of days, it's been reported that Reddit um, has signed a contract with an unnamed AI company uh, to allow them to train its models on the content um, of the site. And obviously a massive amount of content or a massive amount of um, topics mm. um, sort of building off the back of obviously what uh, is it Grok is the, the Twitter AI that yeah. learns off, mm. of that. It has a, a slightly weird personality. Um, but yeah, so un- unnamed company um, mm. at this point, but obviously it'll know, come out soon enough because yeah. they are preparing for an IPO. Yeah, mm. and obviously, like speculation around it being OpenAI because they are kind of one of the big players uh, in the space, um, and they've signed lots of deals with lots of companies and lots of content companies as well, um, including Associated Press. Uh, reportedly, the deal is worth sixty million dollars. Um, per year, um, so it's if not you, chicken feed, it's not it's not chicken feed. Although, although I'm I'm interested to know, and there may not be an answer to this yet, whether the um, the rights to the content goes not just to what's on Reddit, but also the, what's linked on Reddit to actually like going to that third party kind of area. I doubt it. Yeah. I doubt it. Um, I did see some initial, you know, flurries of Reddit discussion of this new development. And people were saying, thanks for letting me know. I'll just go and delete everything I ever posted there. Um, just a note to anyone who's thinking of wasting their time in that endeavour. Um, people quickly disabuse them of that being an effective response to this uh, because apparently when you delete posts there, you know, you're deleting them for you as a user and your fellow users, but not actually for the administration, the site administration that, that's behind Reddit. They can always go back and have a look at at people's deleted posts. And you can see really valid reasons why it would be set up that way. Mm. You know, if they need to track histories of online abuse and what have you and really know who's who's posting and what they need to moderate, then um, that can be a useful tool. Yeah, and, and regardless, like, there has been some previous research which has suggested that models before this announcement were already being trained on... Um, <laughs> Trained on the the data and and image generators as well. So this is yeah, yeah this people is haven't pu- exactly been declaring where they've been getting yeah. all the training data from. Um, so, it, I mean, these are these are the ethical issues that we're all kind of navigating at the moment. Is like how much is our con? We were always worried about how much of our content was ours, but now we're worried about how much of our content is going to be fed into some sort of AI. Well, model. Mm. and that that very old internet maxim: garbage in, garbage out. I mean, it's a pre-internet maxim. It's a database maxim. Uh, has has become more and more relevant these days. And you do think about the vastly varying quality of information on Reddit. And I love Reddit. But, you know, it varies tremendously. I mean, you maybe, do maybe wonder it'll just what be Reddit it, and Reddit, Reddit what, it, what is it good for, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be interesting. Very interesting to see what models make of that. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're with Bite Into It with Dan, Paul and Vanessa and John Payne, regular guest of Bite Into It, who is chair of the board of Electronic Frontiers Australia, a not-for-profit organisation committed to promoting and protecting digital rights in Australia since 1994. Coming up on a bit of an anniversary there, John. Ah, uh, hitting the big 3-0. Very nice. Um, 
planning so, for uh, an event or two. So Oh, we look forward to hearing about so that. Check out the website. That's great. Um, look, tonight we, we wanted to check in. It's a new year. How is the digital rights agenda shaping up in 2024? Looks like it's going to be a very busy year ahead. <laughs> um, certainly at, at the top of the list, um, we have the final report from the Attorney General on the review of the Privacy Act. Um, not really a good outcome from the perspectives of digital advocates, but you have to consider that you are dealing with large organisations like media and telcos that have deep pockets that can afford expensive lobbyists to you know, get policies that they want. So with the review of the Act, um, there's some 100-odd, uh, 111-odd recommendations. Uh, 38 have been approved. Um, 68, the government has... Uh, said they'll take a second look, you know, approved in principle, but we'll have to do some more consultation. Um, and there's um, a big fat no for 10 of them, and some pretty important ones that they're knocking back. Um, one is um, the right to opt out of, of targeted advertising. And really, that's you, pretty significant. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really, really important. Um, and, uh, again, you know, companies that are in media... Uh, in the data broking industry uh, and the big five, the big platforms and providers, um, you know, don't want that to happen because it's, you know, it's a surveillance economy, um, informational capitalism, um, and they're, you know, it's a cash-making machine for them. They've gone in such a different direction in the EU with the GDPR. Um, is is that the same, you know, covering the same sorts of, of um, permissions that we're talking about here, the sort of things we see on uh, mailing lists, you know, making yeah. sure that you've got yeah. options to unsubscribe. And yeah. Yeah, looking at tightening up those requirements um, through the Privacy Act, uh, in terms of introducing a GDPR-like test, a fair and reasonable test, which is not as effective as the approach uh, used in the EU, which is looking at necessity of collection to process, and then restricting that processing to the particular activity for which you collected it, with very, very slim exceptions. Um, we're still having um, a too broad a range of exceptions here in Australia, uh, and, and typically um, we often tend to copy the Americans in trying to solve this problem and using consent for everything. So, um, And you know, lawyers should realise you can't contract your way out of a legal obligation, so why do you make a person consent to a 2,000-word 2000 2000 privacy policy when they simply want to open an account and, you know, uh, start you know, buying some music from you. Particularly if the test is whether something's fair and reasonable and uh, yeah. it's probably not fair and reasonable to expect people to read a, a long, long policy no, that's written no. in legalese that's not easy to understand. No. Um, I, I think I read a, a study somewhere that said it would take, you know, um, the average American some 200 hours to read all the privacy policies of the organisations they deal with in, in one year. Yeah. And that's probably speed reading them. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so there's, there's some areas of concern there, John. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what we're seeing also is um, uh, some, some enforcement from the Privacy Commissioner. And in, in particular, there's a couple of cases that are of interest. Um, one is investigation into the use of facial biometric systems by Bunnings, Kmart and the Good Guys. Uh, and when this was first publicised by the Good Folk of Choice uh, magazine, um, also consumer rights advocates, um, 
Kmart and the good guys uh, and Buddings indicated they were no longer going to do that pending the outcome. The investigation started, I think, in July 2022. We still don't have a decision from the Commissioner yet, um, which is, you know, disheartening. Um, we have um, Clearview AI, uh, who's been scraping all of our facial records uh, off websites willy-nilly uh, for a couple of years now. Um, and uh, the Commissioner took them to court. Um, a, a, the AI is seeking to uh, oppose a decision think, rendered by the court and claim that they can't identify data that they've scraped from Australia. Um, surely the, the kangaroos and uh, the core cats <laughs> in the background did give away, right? Um, Our honest faces, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, I think also a big topic is um, the new digital ID bill. It's floating around. I was just up um, in Canberra this week for EFA and uh, attended a, a workshop uh, that was run by the ANU Tech Policy Design Centre. Um, and unfortunately, you know, chat and rules can't sort of ascribe comments to people who made them. Um, but, but certainly there is um, a big drive by government to try and provide a mechanism through which... Um, digital IT is issued and it becomes an ecosystem um, of uh, attribute providers like UVic roads and, and whatnot uh, and um, authenticators and authenticating entities as well which might be you know Australia Post or a bank uh, maybe a party involved but the fundamental question is is um, the cyber risk and of course that goes to the architecture that they use and if they copy the New South Wales version which is a decentralised version of identity management um, it's a lesser risk but it's not quite sure what the end product will look like. So we've seen this come up so many times well I've seen it come up so many times in my lifetime you know the Australia card various other sorts of um, IDs for, for individuals what sort of case does the government make that the current version of being able to um, identify yourself, prove your identity is not enough? You know, we've got points of data. It's good enough to open bank accounts and get licences and travel to different countries, you know, getting passports and everything. You'd think, how can there not be enough ID? That's the point. Identity is often situational and transactional. Um, and, you know, my driver's licence is not an identity document. It's simply a, a document that allows me to drive a motor vehicle on the roads. My passport is not an identity doc- document. It's a document, a credential that allows me to travel. Um, so that's that's part of the problem. Um, but in, in terms of moving to a biometric, particularly if it's stored remotely, the concern there is if I, for example, have a, an ATM card, and I ring the bank and say, you know, I went out in a bender on the weekend, I lost my wallet, uh, can't find it, let's cancel my card, please. So, okay, I get a fresh card. Um, I get to reset my PIN, so it's something I have, something I know uh, in, in terms of authentication. But if the holder of the facial biometric is compromised um, and that data um, goes to, you know, bad people, it's exfiltrated, gets monetized in the dark web. How do I replace something that I am, a part of me? Um, certainly organizations can 
put mechanisms in place to determine that a um, a pin that has been stolen or compromised is being attempted to be reused. But I, I can't replace my face. And you wouldn't want to. <laughs> no, it's no wall painting. <laughs> I, I do you know, what I can. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to crystallise one of the problems with the biometric data. And just, just picking up on what Vanessa was was asking, how this, this idea keeps coming up. Like, does it feel like there's like a little baby step towards it being implemented? Do we feel like, or is it kind of coming in waves and going back and forth? Are we, is it more likely to happen this time around? Uh, I think there's a degree of confidence that it's going to push forward, although um, I think it's a very, very aggressive policy timeline that the government is setting. Um, New South Wales certainly appear to be the role model for this, and they're touting their success as the you know the basis for which there will be good uptake. They've had 1.8 million people uptake this, this credential since they started in 2020, but they've also had a massive data breach uh, as well uh, of you know thousands and thousands of pages of PDF documents containing people's addresses, their licenses, their passports went into the wild. But it doesn't seem curiously um, to um, keep people away. I don't understand why they are doing so well with this um, credential, this electronic credential, and whether it's simply a generational thing, it's going to a particular demographic. But I was talking to the fellow who was walking in it recently, and he said there's uptake across all demographic groups. What is becoming easier, apparently, in these people's lives that, um, you know, they might not be live to some of these risks. Some of the risks are very technical and they feel a little esoteric. And we know humans, we are terrible at assessing risk. Yeah. Um, but but what might be some of the benefits that, that people are seeing that are, you know, motivating them to bother to set up digital identities? Well, certainly the convenience, um, but that depends upon the underlying process that you have to create your identity and subsequently authenticate it. Mm. Like the, the process the government had with the um, director's ID was an absolute debacle. Um, and certainly you don't want to put people through that process. Mm. Digital ID, it's huge, but we can't spend all of our time talking <laughs> about it. So uh, there's so many things on the agenda this year. Um, tell us about what's happening in the e-safety space, John. Um, the two uh, codes that were put forward uh, by um, the safety commissioner uh, in respect of the uh, uh, risen disc codes uh, didn't make the grade in terms of what uh, respondents submitted, so they're going to um, provide some legislative rules around that. They're planning for that this year, uh, again, focusing on, on um, child safety, um, the reduction of um, uh, child sexual abuse material and whatnot. Um, it's still unclear as to whether or not these standards will require organisations to put in place methods to do client-side scanning, so to, you know, essentially backdoor into encryption, which will be really, really, really bad because it treats everyone as, as a suspect. Um, and that also mirrors what's happening over in the UK at the moment with the Online Safety Act. Uh, and... There's some you know, legal fights going on there to ensure that encryption um, is a safety mechanism that is enjoyed uh, by all for all. Mm. 
Uh, we're getting to nearly the end of our time together. Is there is there a, anything else you'd like to mention that's on your agenda uh, before we tell people where they can keep track of all of these different different um, areas of interest and important yeah. sort of lobbying on behalf of digital rights for, Pro- for everybody? Probably one thing to keep a look on at the moment is part of the ACCC's digital platform inquiry. Um, they're about to announce uh, their ninth topic in the inquiry, so I'm not sure what's in the lucky dip. Um, but they are halfway through their inquiry into data brokers, and data brokers in particular, um, pretty grotty sort of part of uh, the information capitalist uh, engine Um Organisations lurking around in in the background on the internet, stalking us, watching us, nudging us, um, and you know engaging in you know algorithmic behavioural manipulation, modification um, makes truckloads of money for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, the ACCC is only looking at third party brokers, not first party brokers like Google and Facebook and whatnot. So it will be quite limited, but it will be a good start. Um, one of the outcomes that I'd hope to expect. Uh, from the digital rights perspective, um, is a right to have um, my data deleted with these brokers, uh, a right to be told when I'm being tracked, and a right to opt out, which ties back into the Privacy Act review, for which the government has already said, niet. I mean, a right for deletion would be amazing. Um, a, A problem that comes up for lots of people is when incorrect information about them is in these systems. Will there be a right for correction? With data brokers, it doesn't matter. They just flog it. Um, Microsoft released some files back in 2021 and showed there was 625,000 characteristics that data brokers use to package up our data and sell it off to other parties. So they can sell it off to other parties or sell it to marketers. It really is a messy sort of back alley business. Yes, so that little piece of data that, that's intrinsic to us that could be very important and can mess things up if they get it wrong, uh, just this tiny little piece of, of data floating around in these big buckets. Well, we're treated like dairy cattle and, you know, get milked for our data. It's exactly the analogy, right? I think we can't go any further because I need to leave our listeners with that poignant visual of <laughs> their data, but Sorry. also with the important message that you can keep up with and, more importantly, support EFA's campaigns at www.efa.org.au, um, Electronic Frontiers Australia. We've been speaking with John Payne, Chair of the Board. John, thank you for keeping your eyes on all of these really concerning sort of issues uh, for us and um, and helping us keep track of what's what's important and what's important to talk to our government about. Thanks very much, guys. Appreciate the chance to uh, to chat. Thank you. Triple R. Thomas Markson uh, is a Sydney-based interactive and online artist creating mixed media artworks that talk about culture, science and identity. Uh, he studied maths and art and is now a practicing artist in Australasia, Europe and the Americas. Um, and Thomas currently has a piece called Agua Viva, I'm hopefully pronouncing that right, uh, and a not natural exhibition at Science Gallery Melbourne, uh, running from February 17 to the 29th of June of this year. Thomas, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, hello there. Thanks for having me. Um, so just just to open up the conversation, um, tell us about Agua Viva. Yeah, so Agua Viva is an artwork that is, as you mentioned, currently exhibited at the Not Natural uh, show at the Melbourne Science Gallery, and it's actually a big installation consisting of a live jellyfish, 
swimming around in this tank. And it's actually a random number generator. So there's a camera capturing the movements of its jellyfish as it ambles around its tank. And as a result, it's producing all these random numbers that then are shown on the wall uh, in a curious display. Uh, and the thought behind this artwork is that randomness is actually a bit of a commodity these days because there's a lot of encryption companies, etc., that are in need of really good randomness, believe it or not, because they need to have that randomness to start the encryption scheme. And computers in all the might and glory are actually really bad at making randomness because they're all silicon and circuits. They're all made to be predictable. So when it comes to making something random, you can do it, but uh, when it comes to, like, you know, when you require really good randomness, because otherwise, maybe encryption scheme can be more easily hacked if it's too predictable. So a lot of these companies actually source the randomness from an analog source. Could be, you know, filming a tree. There's companies that film lava lamps or other things from nature. So this artwork basically is using a biological source to produce randomness in this instance. Uh, little cute jellyfish. So, 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 Thomas, my my first thought is, do, you chose a jellyfish. Are jellyfish known for being particularly random when it comes to other species, or is it just that like, I'm really interested to know why a jellyfish? I think there's something you know quite graceful about the jellyfish. Like you know, visually it looks stunning and it tends to mesmerise the people because it's sort of a well underneath the tank, etc. Um, but it's also a creature that's been around for 500 million years, and it's very basic. And I like sort of to juxtapose this to a computer, saying that even a stupid computer in all its might cannot beat a jellyfish when it comes to making randomness. And I, I sort of like that juxtaposition. Thomas, I've just written in our show notes that you're a genius, and uh, I'm thinking of every time, you know, someone I've worked for has asked for an out-of-the-box idea, and this is just nailing the brief. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, so I would love to, to hear, um, with a, a little bit of specificity, I guess, um, we can imagine a jellyfish moving around through this space. How did you decide to get the random numbers generating off that movement? Yeah, so... Obviously, yeah, we, we, you can take a two different factors. So there's a camera sitting on top of the tank that is constantly filming and motion tracking the jellyfish. So depending on in this movement, if you imagine the X and Y sort of plane, where it exists, and how fast it's moving, how big the area of movement is detected. So there's a few different things you can tap into that is, determining its randomness, and you multiply them with each other and you get something really random. Um, and you can actually access them online as well to whatever yeah, randomness you require. You can get some freshly spawned random jellyfish numbers. <laughs> jellyfish baby numbers. <laughs> um, I'm really... One of the things, that, as I was sort of looking through the, the collection of your other work, um, so pieces like Digimoss and, and Shadow and Flame, is is that what you've just described there, that intersection or interaction between those natural systems and those technical systems? Like, what what draws you to that that conversation? Yeah, I think it's always like an underlying idea or a philosophy or a number theory or something like that. And if you can express it with, 
an art form or a different unexpected medium. I think people can look at it and look at the entire thought experiment from a different point of view. Uh, and I'm certainly trying to strive to do that with all my different artwork. Uh, some more successful than others, but, <laughs> but yeah, and the jellyfish certainly is getting a lot of attention though, which is, you know, hopefully it doesn't get to its head. <laughs> Do jellyfish have heads? Um, it's all head. It is all head. Uh, lots of legs. Yeah, lots of legs. Thomas, I'm interested in um, going going back to the, to the movement of the jellyfish. Um, so, I'm guessing as they're, they're they're pretty simple organisms, they don't respond to a huge range of stimuli. But I'm guessing that there are stimuli that you could introduce to the system. You know, whether it's the temperature of the water or you know, uh, you know, the presence of another person close to the tank or something like that. Are there ways that you could envisage you could influence the movement of the jellyfish and, as such, reduce the randomness of the numbers that are actually being created? Yeah, so jellyfish are actually really sensitive to the water. The pit is called Agua Viva, and I think you pronounce it quite nicely. But it's actually a Portuguese word for jellyfish, which also means living water, which I think is a, quite a nice word for a jellyfish. But it also describes like they are 90% of water, so they're super sensitive to the water quality. If you change the salinity, the temperature... Uh, the pH levels, the nitrate levels, the, the whole, you know, table of different things it thrives on. Uh, any of those factors, if they change, yeah, the behavior of the jellyfish change. It changes its shape. It sort of becomes less frequent in its contractions, etc. So I think, yeah, there's certainly a lot of factors in the water itself and the current, sort of how fast the current in the tank uh, turns over, also affected. There are some studies that say that jellyfish can actually have very basic pattern recognition, um, which is curious because they don't have any visual receptors, but they seem to be drawn like you know, to one side or another if they were to be food there, etc. So they are interesting creatures, for sure. And that's, I mean, that raises an interesting sort of question around the complexity of the system that you that you've built. Was that... Was that part of your thinking as well? Like those questions around like the temperature of the water or d- did you discover them in the creation of the work? Yeah, no, certainly I had to introduce myself to the complex <laughs> life of a jellyfish when I developed his work for sure. And it was a deep learning curve. But um, yeah, I think all these things add up together to a very complex system. And uh, also like, and you know, I guess, the whims of the jellyfish play a role as well because every jellyfish is slightly different from another and they can take on slightly different shapes and, I guess, attitudes. <laughs> like a better word. Yeah. Look, yeah, yeah, so one jellyfish might have a slightly different pattern from another. Yes. Thomas, so much of experimentation in digital spaces um, takes work and effort and input away from humans and, and seeks to automate and um, get efficiencies, you know, through those sort of avenues. Was there, you know, when you, when you thought about involving other living creatures in a living environment, um, how did that make you think about valuing the contributions that we maybe ignore in our environment? Um, in the contribution we ignore in our environment. So, yeah, we can certainly appreciate certain things in nature we haven't thought about before. And I think, the yeah, the randomness comes into play there a little bit. 
um, you can see if everything was too predictable, like if everything was the simulation of computer, uh, then we might talk about determinism, where everything can be predictable, but with nature and these immense biological systems, it feels like, yeah, the future is more unpredictable. And I think that, you know, it's a nice thought at the end, that nature has a sway. And maybe, yeah, that reminds people um, to think of it in, in those ways, maybe. And how how are audiences responding to this um, in situ? Are they are they drawn to the jellyfish? Are they drawn to the random numbers? Like, what's what sort of interactions are you seeing with with the audience? Well, I think yeah, people are quite mesmerised by the jellyfish itself because it's not something you expect to see in a gallery. <laughs> a living entity. A lot of people ask themselves whether well, this is a hologram pearl because the way it's lit looks like, you know, it's hovering, and then they go closer, and like, oh, no, it's, a, it's actually a real jellyfish. But uh, the nice thing about Science Gallery as well is that it attracts, you know, a whole range of people, a lot of students, and a lot of students that have, like, you know, a keen interest in science. So I see, like, you know, a lot of conversation being struck up that also come from that. So they see the jellyfish, and they read about it, and then they talk about, oh, yeah, is this jellyfish really around a canyon? predict this movement or not and um, is anything truly random or not you know and I sort of enjoy those conversations being struck up after having been somewhat hypnotised by the jellyfish itself and one one of the one of the points I, d- I definitely wanted to kind of raise because it, it's raised on the um, on the website, um, like in the artist notes for this work, you have um, that the numerical string created by the jellyfish uh, is offered up in real time to encryption companies to use at their discretion. How how where are the ethics in that? Like we've sort of touched on on that, but like around the commercialization of these natural behaviors. Yeah. Look, I don't think there's... It's an interesting thing to think about randomness as a commodity, but I don't think it's something that is, you know, the companies pay for themselves right. at this stage. Um, it's not that, you know, exploitative. It's more of a curious thought that, yeah, if the company wants to use it, it can do so, and it would in effect, like, you know, uh, maybe some security transfer online etc rather than but you know you can certainly take the thought to think about like yeah unexpected way in which we can harvest things from nature and possibly exploit it as well uh, even though i don't think this particular example would say like you know okay, the ethics of a company using that is more the fact that it can do it to become uh, Thomas, we're, we are running out of time, but I did have one quick question before you go. What species of jellyfish are we talking about here? Oh, this is a moon jellyfish, a moon which je- is probably the most common jellyfish that's been around for ages. It's the one without, like, you know, the long stingy tentacles, so it doesn't sting anyone. But uh, it does come in droves. They're very seasonal. Um, yeah, moon jellyfish. Much safer for a uh, for a, a gallery context where there's children <laughs> yeah, walking through, sure. the, through the gallery yeah, space. Yeah. Exactly, it doesn't attack anyone or anything like that. <laughs> Very peaceful. Just, hang, just hangs out generating numbers. Um, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening and talking about your work. 
Agua Viva, uh, which is uh, you can go and see um, as part of the Not Natural exhibition at Science Gallery Melbourne um, from now until the 29th of June 2024. And we, we should probably flag if you're thinking of heading along. The show does have a content warning that it contains sensory experiences like jellyfish, which we've just been talking about, and also a machete-wielding houseplant. Thomas, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. Triple R. It's time for Weird News of the Week, and there's plenty of it. Um, if anyone was chatting on various social media networks today, they might have seen people posting about ChatGPT going a bit haywire today, I guess is how you'd say. Um, I have not seen any um, resolution on the why coming from OpenAI yet, uh, but it's possible that it's happened while we've been on air. I've just missed it. I'm hoping that we can follow up this story in the future. Uh, but the ways that people have been posting about it, they've been quoting some of the responses they're getting. And what you're seeing is something that starts with a response in plain spoken English and then jumping off into Spanglish is what people are describing. Uh, it's It's inherently quite difficult to explain something that, then doesn't make sense. When called out on nonsensical responses, it's coming through with things like upside down exclamation mark, whoops, right exclamation <laughs> mark, you know, so that Spanish style of, of um, using your exclamation marks. I really apologise if my last response came through as unclear or sesiente, like it drifted into some nonsensical wording, blah, 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 blah. The cogs and ten la tecla might get a bit whimsical. Muchas gracias for your understanding. Um, e, I'll ensure we're being as crystal clear como lo from now on. Um, Maybe ChatGPT's gone on holiday to Seville or something. Like... You know, and had a had a few tequilas. Um, very interesting. And there's much more. Uh, obscure examples and repetitive examples, which we have sort of seen come up before. Mm. Paul, you were going to say? No, I was going to say, like, my Twitter, uh, for some reason, keeps feeding me uh, a whole bunch of AI advocates saying, all these companies must have, like, artificial general intelligence. Like, they're just keeping it secret from us. And this just makes me think, like, <laughs> they absolutely do not have anything close. Like, we have nothing to worry about. Feel reassured. Like, I just, I'm like, yep, yep, we're, we're all fine. That's enough of that for now. Um, in other uh, interesting generative AI being used to power chatbot news, mm. Air Canada has had um, a result against them in a in a small sort of claims tribunal in Canada. Um, a man from Vancouver um, has had a partial refund for uh, his flight ticket that was promised by the site's chatbot. So. This guy had come into the chatbot, sort of said, hey, this is my situation, you know, there's something to do with a bereavement and blah, blah, blah. You know, am I eligible for, you know, a refund? The chatbot said yes to some degree. And uh, apparently that wasn't in line with the airline's actual policies. The airline d denied the claim. And this, this Vancouver man said, that's not what your chatbot said. And a tribunal has agreed that they need to... Um, live by what their chatbot declared. And so they should. Um, Anyways. Yeah. So it's, it's just very interesting. You know, it's starting to set very, very minor precedent on this front. Um, the companies are responsible for the technology that they use to service their customers. Who knew? Which was exactly the line that they tried to, like, take. They were just like, this is a separate entity. We're not responsible. And everyone else went, <laughs> really? Are you now? Yeah. Anyway, I feel like a Vancouver man is the opposite of a Florida man in this story, isn't it? It's, like, it's very reasonable. It's, it's moderate in impact, you know. It's a, it's a bit cooler. Yeah, it's a bit cooler. 
<laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so something else that um, I think we kind of probably already knew the, that we needed to not do this, but for those of us who have ever thought, oh, no, my phone's gone into, I was going to say the toilet, but any, any body of water. Um, and the first thing... Maybe, that, maybe with a, you know... A jellyfish. Maybe with a jellyfish. Maybe you maybe you dropped a phone in a tank with a jellyfish, and the first thing that you want or you think you need to do is to put it in a bag of dry rice. Apple have said, don't do it. It doesn't <laughs> actually do anything. It could make things worse. There you go. Yeah. And you'd be ruining some perfectly good rice. I know. Come on. Think of the rice. That's that's some food that you're not going to have. I've got priorities. Absolutely. Interestingly, they said that the rice hack actually works slower than just leaving your iPhone on a counter to dry. So, there you go. Yeah. It slows down. I'm genuinely sure that I saw that on QI about four or five years ago, and I don't know why it is that Apple are only discovering to, that they need to tell yeah. us this now. Well, they're obviously not Sandy Toxic fans, and what is wrong with them? It's very, very sad. They need to watch some more BBC too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, In in news that will only make you want to visit Japan, uh, Uber Eats are bringing sidewalk delivery robots to Japan. Oh, my God. How did they not do this already? Uh, They're expecting to roll out, haha, end of March. (laughs) Oh, God. uh, As an expansion of their delivery service there. Um, They're six-wheeled robots. Uh, they're manufactured by an Oakland-based uh, AI company called Cartken, and um, operations will be supervised, we're assured, I'm sure. uh, by Mitsubishi Electric. So it's nice that they have a Japanese tie in there. You'd think you'd want that for the Japanese market. Yeah, true, especially considering that I've not heard of much technology coming out of Japan over the last 40 or 50 years. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but but well, all I would say to that is... Go outside. You're in Japan. It's an amazing place. Experience it and go into the restaurant that is inevitably at the bottom of your apartment building. There you go. There you go. Spoken by Dan. Thank you. Uh, Closing us out, some events and opportunities. Um, We've already talked about the Not Natural exhibition at Science Gallery Railburn, but just to reiterate, uh, opened on 17th of February and runs until 29th of June this year. Um, It explores the dynamic intersection between the natural and artificial worlds, offering a thought-provoking exploration of topics such as synthetic biology, species de-extinction, chimera creatures, and artificial intelligence, and that's with free admission. Um, also on is the NGV Triennial uh, until seventh of April with free entry. Um, two interesting pieces: digital work speculum by Dutch collective Smack, which comprises three distinct scenes, um, and Heterobora, which tests our threshold for machines to exist outside of servitude and to develop their own creative pursuits. Which you can go and check out there. This is the one with those robots. Yeah, yeah. the Boston Dynamic. That's they don't it. deliver food for you though. <laughs> the, the Free Play Awards are returning this year with a record number of submissions. Uh, celebrating the amazing diversity of independent games from Australia and around the region. Uh, Thursday, February 29th, so tomorrow at... Oh, no, next Thursday, sorry, um, at Fringe Common Rooms in Carlton. I've got my dates wrong. I'm not even sure what my name is at the moment. you freaked me out for a second, but you reined it back in. (laughs) You can check that out at freeplay.net.au. And, uh, hey, we want to say a big thank you to our guests this evening. It's been a lovely scene-setting sort of show. I feel oriented in my environment and some of the things I should be thinking about and visiting. So thanks to John Payne from Electronic Frontiers Australia and Thomas Markison, one of the artists who's got um, a fantastic exhibition on at the Science Gallery in Melbourne. Thanks, my fellow hosts. Paul, Dan, always a pleasure. Thank you, Vanessa. It's always a pleasure to make radio with you. Thanks to our talks producer, Lou Lynn. Couldn't do it without her. We're off to watch some jellyfish. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. 
Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.